The most momentous elections are always about change. Try and think of any campaign slogan you've ever heard in your life. It's never like, elect me to keep things exactly the same. The promise of political change, change that will make a real difference in people's lives, plays a huge role in inspiring us to take action. According to a new United Nations report, the devastating impacts of human-caused climate change are happening now. Canadians are making their voices heard in a powerful display of unity against police brutality and systemic racism. Stay at home, that is the order tonight as the coronavirus pandemic spreads. Those headlines and sounds are from ABC News, Global News, CNN, Bloomberg, and The Ottawa Citizen. As you can hear, Canadians are passionate about many issues, from housing to climate to the cost of living. These are just some examples of what could make someone want to vote or contact their political representative or even volunteer for a party in their riding. But when the promise of change doesn't translate into something meaningful, it can make us feel disempowered and excluded from the political process entirely. And once that connection is broken, it's tough to repair. People need to feel that their actions matter and will produce tangible results. Standing in line for the polls, calling your representative, talking politics with your neighbors, and volunteering for candidates. This is the practice of democracy, and it takes work. That work feels worthwhile when citizens see it making a difference in policies, in legislation, and in who represents them. When we don't see a difference, it can feel like it's not worth it. And this feeling is a real threat to democracy. And democracy advocates admit freedoms are eroding and authoritarianism is rising. That's from the PBS NewsHour. And it can feel really frustrating when you want to see change after an election, but it doesn't actually happen. Well, it might surprise you to know that many MPs feel the same way. I'm Sabrina Dellen. Welcome to Humans of the House. At the Samara Center for Democracy, we've been doing exit interviews with former MPs for over a decade. In this show, we hear from a dozen former MPs who served between 2015 and 2021. And in today's episode, we're asking them, how hard is it, really, for an MP to make change? When MPs are elected, we say that they come into power, but MPs often find themselves struggling to make their promised changes happen. A lesson that many MPs learn the hard way is that getting things done in Parliament can be complicated.
We are going to hear in this episode about the different ways MPs have worked to make meaningful change while in Parliament. We will hear about wins, but also the barriers and the strategies MPs use to navigate the structure of Canadian government. One tactic we heard a lot about? Well, say what you will about politicians being all talk, but it does pay if an MP is a powerful public speaker. Mr. Speaker, when the Prime Minister insists that this pipeline expansion will be done no matter what. In 2018, former NDP MP Romeo Saganash gave a speech aimed squarely at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He had been elected in, in 2015 with many promises to Indigenous peoples, which never materialized. And at that point, I was exasperated listening to him and his ministers saying one thing and doing the opposite. And one morning, my partner, who's now member of parliament for Winnipeg Centre, and I were walking towards the house. And I said, I said to her, I think I'm going to say the word, key F word today in the house. In case you didn't catch that, Romeo told his partner, I think I'm going to say the F word. Because I'm, I'm pretty fed up. And she said, okay, have a good day. <laughs> That morning, his party, the NDP, let him know he would be getting speaking time in the House. They informed me at around 10 o'clock, 10.30, that I had a question. And usually our team or my office assistants would draft a question that I would modify, but nobody had prepared anything for me that day. So I said, it's all right, I'll, I'll write my own question today. Mr. Speaker, when the Prime Minister insists that this pipeline expansion will be done uh, no matter what, and his minister adds that, uh, that Canada will not be able to accommodate all Indigenous concerns, what that means is that they have decided to willfully violate their constitutional duties and obligations. Mr. Minister, Mr. Speaker, sounds like a most important relationship, doesn't it? Why doesn't the Prime Minister just say the truth? and tell the Indigenous peoples that he doesn't give a f- about their rights. This speech had exactly the effect you'd think. It was all over the news, and Romeo wants to make something clear. I really, really put much effort in trying to find another word that day. But I realized today there was no other words. So there you go. That's how that that moment came to be. It was out of exasperation. I was totally fed up. The Honourable Member for Abitibi Bay James Nunavik EU is an experienced member and knows that that is unparliamentary language and I'd ask him to withdraw the word and apologize. Monsieur le Président, c'est tellement insultant ce qui se passe présentement que ça me met hors de moi. Alors, Je m'en excuse, je retire le mot, et euh, vraiment désolé. You just heard Romeo say in French that he apologizes and withdraws the word. So, it's not just people at protests who get angry, or people who write letters to their MPs. MPs themselves get fed up too. In theory, our elected representatives have so many more tools at their fingertips than the average citizen. Isn't that the point? 
Well, it's no secret that striving for change and delivering on it are two very different things. Let's go to former Liberal MP Robert Falcon Ouellette of Winnipeg Centre, who talked to us about what was happening with Bill S3 during the summer of 2016. This bill was meant to address the sex-based discrimination within the Indian Act. So the Indigenous status of Indigenous women is a long-standing issue in Canadian politics. Let's just make sure we're all on the same page about the word status. According to Indigenous Services Canada, Indian status is the legal standing of a person who is registered under the Indian Act. A registered person can access certain benefits, rights, and programs. This is a very simple explanation of something complex, so we've provided some links with background on the Indian Act in our show notes. Please check that out. What's key for Robert is that once someone loses their status, they can't pass it down to their children. This means entitlements and links to community are lost. Indigenous women had lost their status when marrying a non-Indigenous man, and they would be removed from the reserves, kicked off the reserves, and lose all benefits. And a lot of times access to their family and their culture, not only for themselves, but also for their children. And even if they broke up or divorced that gentleman, they would still be unable to regain status, as would their children. Bill S-3 was meant to address sexist discrimination in the Indian Act by making sure Indigenous women could pass down status to their children, just like Indigenous men. Robert didn't think the bill went far enough. The government, once again, just wanted to move the goalposts just a tiny little bit, a few inches, not really deal with the discrimination against women and their descendants. And I said no, and I'm not going to you know, give my yay to this discrimination going on because we're supposed to be the party that votes for the charter. We're supposed to be the party that stands up for equality, gender equality. We are supposed to have gender analysis that goes on. And here we are discriminating against Indigenous women. And I get told by ministers, oh, you know what? You have to wait your time. Then you can deal with this appropriately. Wait your time. Usually, this means waiting to gain leverage, build power, strengthen relationships. At this point, Robert had been an MP for less than a year. And I was like, I am not here to wait my time. I am here for people. So, you know, we start this long uh, campaign and actually the day the government voted to continue the discrimination of Bill S. Three, It was on June 21st, which was National Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, incredibly enough. And, you know, I could not vote for it. I couldn't even stomach the thought of even being in Parliament on that day. So I actually went back to the riding where we have a, you know, 30,000 Indigenous people in Winnipeg Centre and spend time with them and uh, kind of rethink. And so it passes, it goes to the Senate and they decided to delay it. They were going to review it. And so now the fun begins over the course of the summer. I talked to the Parliamentary Budget Office because the government had officials and their talking points said, we don't know how much this would cost. Well, why not? Let's do a costing. So as the PBO, can you get a costing analysis done? PBO stands for Parliamentary Budget Officer, which provides independent number crunching and analysis about how much something will cost the government. No one's requested this, but we can see what, how much it would cost to extend status to all the descendants of all Indigenous women who have been discriminated against. 
how much would it cost to give back status retroactively to Indigenous women and their descendants? Everything has a cost associated, and Parliament needs to know that dollar amount. So Robert aligned with the Senator, Mary Lou McFedrin, to request this cost analysis. The House of Commons and Senate have to pass a bill for it to become law, so it's smart to try to work together. Government said it's going to cost billions and billions. It wasn't going to cost that. The analysis actually said it would cost $407 million. And then the government's, you know, looking at it and they're humming and hawing over it. And, you know, I think they amended it a couple more times and back into committee. And then the Senate said they're still not going to approve it. Ultimately, the version that passed was one that Robert was happy with. And he credits two senators in particular. Lillian Dick, the senator from Saskatchewan, who's recently retired, absolutely amazing. Mary Lou McFedrin, a senator from Manitoba. These really great allies, strong women, one who's Indigenous, one who is not Indigenous, but nonetheless, they kept up this good fight. And they were able to ensure that, you know, this was, this was, you know, we ended discrimination and we didn't sit around, wait our turn for another generation. Robert talks about amending, hemming and hawing, back and forth to committees. Change on the Hill doesn't usually occur in a straight line. Back and forth wrangling, dodging certain barriers and criticisms, while threading together different interests to assemble the needed support. These are themes that crop up over and over again in our conversations with former MPs. All this takes time. Here's Matt DeCourcy of Fredericton. Very rarely are there home runs in politics, right? Like often it's, you know, you're trying to hit a single, you get a runner on first, try and bunt them over to second, steal third. Like these are the sorts of, this is the way things get moved along. It's a big machinery. You've got politics and you've got, you know, your inter-party dynamics. You've got the cross-partisan dynamics. You've got the bureaucracy, which is massive and moves at its own pace with its own intention. If you can move things down the line a little bit, Like, we should celebrate that, right? Matt had this realization early based on advice he got to make relationships. He thought... Okay, I've got to go and demonstrate to people in Ottawa that I can be trusted, that I have credibility in my community, and that I can help advance the agenda of the government. And I say that because I ran on a platform that I believed in. Right. I believed in helping move some of these things forward. Now, I think, you know, that we may have been naive to think we could accomplish everything in there without the landmines that appear in the way, without all the different interests that you have to balance. But my goal was really, can I can I go there, you know, gain relationships where people who have more influence and more decision making authority then me will listen to me, will will take what I have to offer on behalf of my community to heart. And can I, you know, help my community by moving up in stature within, within, within the circles of the party. So Matt went into the job understanding that as a new MP, he would have to build up influence and authority. Part of the work of representing his constituents would lie in building relationships and demonstrating that he could advance the agenda of his party. Those relationships, that value to his caucus and committees, those were the levers he could eventually pull to create change for his community. 
You might assume that as soon as a member of parliament steps into the House of Commons, they have all the mechanisms needed to deliver on their platform. But as a rookie backbench MP, Matt had to work to develop networks and connections with more powerful colleagues in the House. Making change meant building up his stature within the party. It meant paying close attention to power dynamics. When MPs can figure out a way to mobilize their relationships with their colleagues, draw on their knowledge of parliamentary bureaucracy, and link up with public sentiment, then they can make a real, tangible impact. And that was an incredibly rewarding experience for many of the former MPs we spoke to. When I asked Lisa Raitt what was enjoyable or fun about the job, she said this. Fun. The fun is different. Uh, Satisfying would be the word I would use uh, more so than anything else. And satisfying for me was making sure that the dot one eleven oil tankers that exploded and killed 47 people in Lac Meganic will never, ever be used again on a North American railroad, period. Full stop. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It was such an inferno. It caused so much agony in one Quebec town that nothing can ever undo the tragedy of the train disaster in Lac Megantic. Finally, though, there are criminal Lisa charges. was the Minister of Transport in 2013 when, as you can hear in this report from Global News, safety failures led to a runaway train that exploded and destroyed a Quebec town. This type of tank car was banned from carrying crude oil and phased out altogether. That is a remarkable feat that we were able to pull that off. And I give full credit to the the mayor of Lac Megantic, Colette Roy LaRoche. And I give full credit to the then Secretary of Transport in the U.S. who listened to these two crazy Canadian women that he needed to make the change in the United States as well as in Canada. For me, that was very satisfying, very gratifying. Creating change, making an impact, it can be incredibly satisfying, as Lisa said. Sure, there are many different opinions on what kind of change we need in Canadian society. But like I said, you rarely hear a politician campaigning like, I won't do anything differently, or I'll just keep on keeping on. And our former MPs tell us making change is what they set out to do. So how does it feel when you actually have a win? Here's Selena Caesar Chavan, former MP for Whitby, Ontario. I would say the biggest one was in the 2017 budget. I asked Jane Philpott, who was the Minister of Health at the time, what do you need to get mental health in the budget? And earlier in 2016, I had what's classically termed as a nervous breakdown. My mental health was at its worst. And it was really important for me to, if I couldn't get a national brain strategy, to at least get something in related to mental health. And she said, we need $3 billion to get that. And I was just like, $3 $3 billion is such a, like, it's not a bold number. Again, I'm going over this bold, transformative government. It's not even a bold number. I said, let's go for five. Five billion and make sure everybody has access, especially those who need it the most, right? The people who, who don't have the access that we think access means. And so I got up in caucus. Others got up in caucus and told our stories. And there was $5 billion in the 2017 budget. It's amazing. 
That is amazing because the budget spells out what the government will do. The government's budget is a financial plan telling us how the government intends to spend our tax dollars. And a federal budget comes down every year as a reflection of what the government's priorities are. But sometimes it takes many years just to plant a seed. More on that next. This is a mid-roll ad, so you might be expecting us to sell you a mattress or some accounting software. Well, listen, we wish you good sleep and fiscal organization, but no, we're not going to sell you anything. This minute is for us, you and me. I'm Hannah, one of the producers of this show, and we want to tell you why we made this podcast. See, the Samara Center for Democracy is on a mission to secure a resilient democracy with an engaged public and responsive institutions. What does that mean? Well, the Samara Center wants to make it easier for you to talk about Canada's democracy and participate in it. So talk to us. Tell us why you're listening to this show. It's simple to do. I know you've got your phone in your hand right now. Post about humans of the house and tag us on Instagram and Twitter at the Samara Center. That's at T-H-E-S-A-M-A-R-A-C-E-N-T-R-E. We know why we're doing this work. Tell us why you're listening. Hashtag humans of the house. We started today's episode with Romeo Saganash dropping an F-bomb in the House of Commons. He was deeply frustrated. But don't think that he doesn't have patience. Before he was an MP, he... Worked uh, internationally for, for my people at the United Nations to negotiate the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. There are very few people on this planet that can say, I was there for the 23 years that that negotiations lasted. I can say that. Romeo went to negotiate every summer for 23 years. And by 2007, the United Nations finally had a Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP, a document of human rights. That year, 143 countries voted in favour. Four countries voted against it, including Canada. So Romeo's work wasn't done. After becoming an MP, Romeo put forward a bill in 2016 to ensure Canada's laws would comply with UNDRIP. This finally came to fruition through a different bill in 2021. Romeo was fighting for the recognition of Indigenous rights for decades. Remember his ability to give a memorable speech? Let's go back to the House of Commons here. Let me tell you a little story. Mr. Speaker, about a little boy named Johnish, who was sent to residential school in 1954. He was five years old, never came back, apparently died the first year he arrived in residential school. His mom, Mr. Speaker, his mom never knew until after two years of his death. His mom, my mom, for 40 years, never knew where Johnish was buried for 40 years, Mr. Speaker. And it is only by coincidence one day that one of my sisters happened to be in the area and someone told her, I know where your little brother is buried. 
So after 40 years, my sister filmed the site where he was buried, brought the film back to my mom to show her. Can you imagine? Romeo is visibly emotional here, and his colleagues are clapping to support him. What I told in Parliament was that I've seen my mom cry many, many times in my life. Never the way she cried that day. That's closure. That's closure. That's what we call closure. That's how closest she could get to a final closure for a son. Where is the Canada we used to know, Mr. Speaker? Where is it? The one that has a history of upholding high standards of human rights and social democratic values in this country. Where is it? Remember what I said earlier about how complicated change can be with power dynamics in play? Back to Andrip and Romeo's bill on making Canadian law comply with it. While I was fighting for my legislation on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, Bill C-262, in the Senate, and had passed the Parliament, the third reading, so it went to the Senate, and five unelected, unaccountable conservative senators had decided to block it in the Senate. I don't know how many times I met with those five, but at one point I understood that these people did not want to be convinced. So it was a difficult time because she was, my mom was dying and and I knew she was going to leave pretty soon. And my bill was dying, on the other hand, in the Senate. And I asked her, I asked her if she would like to us to bring back the remains of Johnish. And she didn't even hesitate in her answer. She said, no, it's not necessary. I'll see him again. So uh, the bill died one week after she passed. But now we have Bill C fifteen, so which is which is good. That that was the that was the attempt, that was the objective. Bill C-15 is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, and it was passed in 2021. And I hope that from that basis, we can achieve this reconciliation that everybody talks about. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what we do in this country. We talk about it without doing very concrete stuff to to make sure that we are able to reconcile our rights and our interests in this country. Romeo can give a good speech and he knows the tough work of making true legislative change. 
Let's drill down to understand how MPs make the leap from talking to doing. I had a great time working on bringing electronic petitions to the House of Commons. NDP MP Kennedy Stewart set his sights on a small but concrete win. What I was really looking for is something I I could actually achieve. So I thought if I did any kind of grandiose democratic reform, it would never happen. So I took a think of a small thing and thought, maybe I can make this work. Petitions get presented and read out loud in the House of Commons. It's a pretty direct way to raise your concern about an issue to all MPs. But before Kennedy helped bring e-petitions to the House of Commons in 2015, every petition presented to the House was on paper. If the House was going to go digital with petitions, Kennedy would need the support of MPs who were not in his party. And it allowed me to have a kind of a genuine dialogue with many conservatives who wouldn't talk to me about a whole bunch of issues. But when I said, look, this allows your constituents too, especially in northern or rural ridings, where it's very hard to circulate paper petitions. Mm-hmm. And, and they thought, oh, this guy's being genuine. He's presented very good information. I, I went to Britain and I, and I talked to their at that point, conservative government about how electronic petitioning is working for them and came back with with evidence and, and was able to present this to them and, and make my case. There was a Harper majority still, but I, uh, you know, and everybody said, well, you know, you're never going to private members bill passed or because, you know, the, the opposite, you know, the government will shut it down. That's just the math. If every MP votes with their party, And by the way, a private member's bill is a bill proposed by a backbencher MP, anyone not in cabinet. I ended up winning a vote in the House of Commons by by two votes. I split off a number of conservative MPs who voted along with my NDP and Liberal and Green Bloc colleagues and ended up winning that vote in the House, which really kind of made me feel like my time in Ottawa was worthwhile, even though I, I didn't have one of the top jobs. I think it was important to try to make some change. <laughs> the clerks told me now that a third of the web traffic to our the House of Commons website is e-petitioning now. <laughs> so it's amazing. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people have like taken these things up, and I think, well, that was worth it. You know, like to get somebody yeah. that had never been engaged before, who like starts an e-petition and then gets it read in Parliament, like that's. That's where you kind of start to rekindle the flame of, of belief in democracy. So that, that's why it was important to me, because I thought it was worthwhile doing, but I also thought that I could win it. And I did. Yeah. I'm really happy about that. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians have started or signed petitions online, petitions that can be read out loud in Parliament. That's a very real change to the way we are doing things. It's a win-win-win. But change doesn't always work out as a win for everyone there can be backlash. Addressing inequity means acknowledging power and privilege. In 2018, the Liberal government's federal budget included $19 million for Black youth and mental health, over $30 million for racialized newcomer women and other types of anti-racism funding. Maxime Bernier was an MP for the Conservative Party then. He critiqued the Liberal government, saying we should have a colorblind society. Selena Caesar Chavan pushed back. I tweeted back at him and said something along the lines of be quiet, 
and check your privilege. And what ended up happening was a lot of right-wing media picked up on it and started saying that I was... Basically, what they were saying was I was the most racist MP in Canada because I was calling things out. And then it was, you know, Selena sees racism everywhere. And at that point, it was just so debilitating. Again, you're talking about years of having these little instances where there is this sense of unbelonging. This happens, and for three weeks, I am in the boiler. I am getting publicly, publicly just roasted. And then Adam Vaughn, who I consider like the world's greatest political ally, sends out a tweet that says, here are the reasons why Selena is right and puts here for Selena. And Canadians, international media start picking up on this here for Selena hashtag to support this black woman who's being completely gaslit for talking about race and calling out racism at a federal level. So here for Selena was bittersweet because while I was buoyed by that reality that Canadians understood the people internally who didn't say anything for three weeks, all of a sudden were hashtag here for selena And it dawned on me that it was very easy for them to stand with me when it was convenient and leave me when it was not convenient. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Like, it was at that point that I just decided, after here for Selena, that I wasn't running again. I wasn't going to run. I wasn't going to run liberal again. In that moment. Yeah. During that hashtag. It was that, it was so, at about six o'clock that night, I got a call from PMO saying that the prime minister wanted, oh, it's asking me first, is everything okay? Or am I okay? And that the prime minister wanted to meet with me the next day. And I was like, <laughs> y'all tripping. I'm like, no, you know, I'll meet with him. But in my mind, I was like, this relationship is done. PMO is the prime minister's office. And for Selena, this phone call was too little too late. She wasn't happy with the lack of support while she was being harassed online before the hashtag started trending. And this was years into an unsatisfying relationship between Selena and the Prime Minister, for whom she was the Parliamentary Secretary. When she made the decision she would not run again as a Liberal, she didn't tell the Prime Minister until a year later. So tell me how you told the Prime Minister you were not going to run again. So I was in Whitby. I'm in the home that I'm currently in, just just bought my home and, you know, feeling it for security reasons, because I've had death threats and been sued and all kinds of stuff. So I buy this home. It's really secluded. I'm feeling like my life is going to finally get back together. I'm not going to run again for a number of reasons. But having a death threat against yourself and your children is reason enough for me. I say I'm not going to run again. The PMO calls and says, oh, the prime minister would like to speak to you. So I say, OK, fine. And 
that evening about nine o'clock or 9.30, I get a call from the prime minister's switchboard and he comes on and I'm like, hey, you know, how's it going? And, you know, a little bit of small talk. And I say, I'm not, you know, running again. Does it feel tense or is it, is there? There was always tension because since when I left as parliamentary secretary to international development, Again, all these positions that I left as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, parliamentary secretary for international development, all of them came with very valid reasons that I spoke to the prime minister about. All were related to the way I was treated. And I left parliamentary secretary to international development because the party didn't support me with Max. You left me out on a limb and you have people calling me the most racist MP in the country and you don't say anything. You, uh, clearly, you're not on my team, so I'm not going to be on yours. So it was already tense. SNC is happening at the same time. Jody Wilson-Raybould is leaving or has just stepped down that morning or something's happening. Jody Wilson-Raybould was the first Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. She left the Liberal Party during a political scandal known as the SNC-Lavalin Affair. At this time, it's 2019, and the Prime Minister's actions were under scrutiny. And... He says, I can't have two powerful women of color leave at the same time. And then goes on about how much he helped me during the by-election, how his family has also had threats. And in my mind, I'm going, my family has threats, your family has threats, yes. But you have RSC MP protects you for the rest of your life. I don't. So these... These kind of comparisons that you're making as a black, as a white man named Trudeau to a black woman named Selena are ridiculous. And I'm getting heated. Like I am, I'm walking through my house and I'm saying, I hope you recognize what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to hold on to you, to support you when I, I know that you don't recognize how this has impacted me. The amount of times I had been disrespected in that place. And then to get this phone call, if we extrapolate this to a larger picture, this man holds the pen on policy that impacts 37 million people. If he could treat me, me, an elected official, the way he did for four years, that phone call was nothing because we gave tit for tat. We went round for round on that one. But for four years, what does it say about the people who don't have the privilege that I have? What does it say about our democracy? And I wish, I wish if you take nothing from this exit interview, that you take the fact that if you could treat someone you could tokenize them for a year. You could exclude them. You can make them feel like they're worthless in your government. What does that say about how you treat people who don't have privilege that I have because they can never stand in their power because they're poor and they're vulnerable and they're marginalized? What does it say about how you treat them? Over the course of four years, Selena, um... I'm thinking about the accumulation of disrespect you felt, like the extra emotional labor that's put upon the people who are the first or the only, as if they're supposed to do extra things to survive. Can you talk about that? 
Well, we have to do extra things to survive. And so, yes, we have to navigate those systems. And yes, I had to ask and re-ask for repeals of mandatory minimums and expungements of criminal records for people who have cannabis possessions instead of a pardon. But you hear these outrageous stories of why we can't do that. Like the system doesn't work by one person pushing, right? At some point, you just say, you know what? I'm tired of beating my head against this wall. Yeah, I'm good. I'm out. Today, the government of Canada recognizes the systemic racism of the criminal justice system. The Liberal Party introduced a bill to repeal many mandatory minimum sentences, which disproportionately affect Black and Indigenous people. Selena had been pushing for repeals of mandatory minimums for people convicted of cannabis possession, but those changes didn't happen while she was there. She left the Liberal Party in 2019. The Liberal government introduced this bill in 2021. Pushing for change can come at a high cost, as it did for Selena. The playing field isn't even for all members of Parliament. This came up a lot in our conversations. You know, I said, Sabrina, like that, that place was built for people like me, right? Like I, you know, I was a guy, I'm white, I was still young, but approaching middle age, not a lawyer. So, you know, like that, not, not <laughs> exactly the same, not, you know, with the big gray beards and the gray hair. Uh, didn't come from an elite family, but came from a very comfortable middle-class family, right? With all the support in the world and had been exposed to politics and encouraged towards it. I had every advantage going into that place. And I'm still proud of how I navigated it. But I know you're going to speak to a number of other former colleagues who had vastly different experiences. Matt wasn't the only person to point out their own privilege, Privilege goes hand in hand with power, and power is often what we're grappling with when we talk about political change. Here's Kennedy Stewart again. I'm kind of the walking embodiment of privilege. I'm a, you know, six foot blue eyed, straight white guy. Like, you know, I, and I, it took me a little, really, it was not until I got to Ottawa that I realized how privileged I am. I know from my colleagues who who have different characteristics or backgrounds, that life is more difficult for them in, in politics. And I think we've got to change that. Can you give an example? What's something you observed that really, really struck you? I, the racism, I mean, especially towards my Indigenous colleagues. I had one a colleague who was of a Chinese ancestry, and the racism was among MPs or, or in the community was constant. And I think that it was so disappointing and and to have it you know mps that are kind of powerful people in their own right it, it didn't really phase people to kind of make these make these kind of comments or or marks and then like i said harassment towards women you know it, it's it's not it's like the place isn't built for them you know it's not it's it's built for a certain you know if, if you're a, an established straight white guy who's a lawyer that's for you. That's what that's built for. But if you're, you know, if you're my friend like Romeo Sagadash, who went, uh, his family went through residential schools and 
you know, from Northern Quebec and you're Cree and you're coming down to voice your community's opinions, it's not really the place for you. And that's a shame. And that's not how legislatures are really supposed to work. But um, unfortunately, that's how many of them do work. Change doesn't have to be a zero sum game. It doesn't have to be about a winner and a loser. But when hard won changes get made, it can come at a cost to the change maker. I'm going to go back to Selena for a moment, but not to our interview. Instead, I'm taking you back to September 20th, 2017, to the House of Commons. Selena gave a speech about representation that went viral, making headlines around the world. This week I have my hair in braids, much like I've had for most of my childhood. However, Mr. Speaker, it's come to my attention that there are young girls here in Canada and other parts of the world who are removed from school or shamed because of their hairstyle. Mr. Speaker, body shaming of any woman in any form from the top of her head to the soles of her feet is wrong. Irrespective of her hairstyle, the size of her thighs, the size of her hips, the size of her baby bump, the size of her breasts or the size of her lips, what makes us different makes us unique and beautiful. So, Mr. Speaker, I will continue to rock these braids for three reasons. Number one, because I'm sure you'll agree, they look pretty dope. Number two, in solidarity with women who have been shamed based on their appearance. And number three, and most importantly, in solidarity with young girls and women who look like me and those who don't. I want them to know that their braids, their dreads, their super curly Afro puffs, their weeds, their weaves, their hijabs and their headscarves and all other variety of hairstyles belong in schools, in the workplace, in the boardroom, and yes, even here on Parliament Hill. Thank you. Finding your authentic voice in the House of Commons is a win. Today, we heard about lots of wins, changes big and small. Banning .111 oil tankers, repeals of mandatory minimums, removing sex-based discrimination in the Indian Act, implementing e-petitions, adopting UNDRIP as Canadian law. It's a privilege to make change. It can also be a burden. So back to the question driving our episode, how hard is it, really, to make change as an MP? Well, as we've heard, it's not easy, but it is satisfying. It is life-changing. It is possible with determination, collaboration, and strategy, like making unexpected alliances within and beyond the House of Commons. One big takeaway from these conversations? You can't make meaningful change alone. Big thanks to all the former MPs and thank you for listening to Humans of the House. This podcast is produced by Media Girlfriends for the Samara Center for Democracy. I'm Sabrina Dellen, Executive Director of the Samara Center. Executive producers of this podcast are Hannah Sung and Garvia Bailey. Associate producer is Elena Hudgens-Lyle. Research is by manager Dr. Beatrice Wayne and coordinator Vijay Kumar at the Samara Center. And our sound engineer is Gabby Clark. 
theme music was composed by Project Whatever. A special thanks goes to the Canadian Association of Former Parliamentarians, Charlie Feldman, Bill Young, Michael McMillan, Ruth Ostrauer, Jennifer Jamblanco, and Nanaba Duncan. We are also grateful for funding from Heritage Canada and Rosamond Ivy. This episode included clips from ABC News, Global News, CNN, Bloomberg, The Ottawa Citizen, and PBS NewsHour. The Samara Centre for Democracy is a nonpartisan registered charity. Our mission is to realize a resilient democracy with an engaged public and responsive institutions. To support our work, visit samarascenter.ca and click Donate. This podcast is part of the MP Exit Interview Project. To learn more about this work and other research, visit our website and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Samara Center. If you, like us, care about the human side of politics, help spread the word about our show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You'd be surprised how much it helps. Tell your friends. And if you teach, share the show with your class. Thank you for listening.